trust, intimacy, affection. These are some of the key ingredients to a healthy romantic relationship. If you're dating, you hope to find these things in a partner, and you want to be able to provide those things in return. But what happens when it's not that simple? What happens when pain and memory and trauma get in the way? From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. We're going to do something a little different on today's episode. We're going to spend some time on a story that illuminates one particular challenge of trying to meet someone. It's the challenge of trying to find a partner when something traumatic has been done to you in your past. I should note before we get into it that this episode contains sensitive material about sexual abuse that might be upsetting to some listeners. Let's start at the beginning. Hello, Michael. Hi, Meredith. Michael grew up in a town just south of Boston. He was raised Catholic. Into his late teens, he says, the church was everything to him. I had lots of relationships with priests and monks and nuns, and those relationships were very dear to me. I was actually starting to think about becoming a priest at that point. At 17, Michael develops a friendship with a priest named Robert Gale. Father Gale had been Michael's grandmother's priest at St. Monica's Church in South Boston. I really felt like he was interested in me and wanted to be a resource to help me and share things with me, and I felt really good about it. The summer after graduation, Michael's grandmother asks Father Gale to perform the baptism of a cousin's baby. The morning of the ceremony, Father Gale calls Michael at home to make sure he'll be there. I showed up early, and he was so excited to see me, and he gave me hugs, and he was tickling me, and he asked me if I would help with the baptism, which to me was just amazing. After the baptism, Father Gale asks Michael to come hang out with him in the rectory. So they walk over together. They head upstairs to Father Gale's office, which is next to Gale's bedroom. At this point, Michael says, Father Gale begins to undress in front of him. It would have been very easy for him to do it discreetly out of view, but he seemed to deliberately do it in front of me. So now we're buddies because we can undress in front of each other. Father Gale tells Michael he wants to show him some pictures in the bedroom. Soon after, Michael says, the priest brings him over to the bed and starts to hug him. That was nice. I am always a hugger, but it just didn't end even after I dropped my arms. And then he started giving me Eskimo kisses, and then he kissed me on the mouth. Fortunately, the phone rang, and he went to answer it, and I went back into the office. And when he came back into the office, the conversation turned very sexual. And we had a conversation about how priests have sexual needs just like everybody else, and... I made a point to let him know that I'm not gay. And he said, one homosexual experience doesn't make you gay. It's the lifestyle. And at that point, along with some other conversation that we had, I knew that I had to get out of there. Michael tells Father Gale he has to leave. The priest is much larger than him, Michael says. But he doesn't try to stop Michael. 
In the weeks afterward, Michael vaguely understands that something bad has happened to him, but it's hard to make sense of it. He knew he wasn't raped and didn't feel like he had been molested, but the experience was deeply traumatic. A few months pass. Michael goes away to Fairfield University, a Jesuit college in Connecticut. His pain continues to grow. I started feeling very uncomfortable around friends who were the same age and body type as Father Gale. Michael tells the story to a counselor at his college, who's also a priest. The counselor urges him to report it to the church, but church officials are no help, Michael says. Michael then transfers to Providence College, another Catholic school. He tells a department head what happened to him, and basically he's just told to let it go. All of these interactions reinforce to Michael this idea that he's making a big deal out of nothing. Something bad almost happened, but not quite. Thank God it didn't actually happen. But that isn't how it feels inside to Michael. He's consumed by anxiety and depression, until finally, at age 21, he lands in the psychiatric unit of a Boston hospital. Two important things happen to Michael in the hospital. One, he gets on a medication that stabilizes him. And two, he realizes, looking around at these other patients, this is not a life he wants. So I went back to college and every day felt like a war. Just to get through the day was a major accomplishment. But I took one day at a time, one step in front of the other, and made it through. Michael takes some time off from school to focus on healing. He goes on what he describes as a life-changing trip to Ireland and decides he wants to train to be a school counselor to help other teenagers in difficult situations. But then, after he finishes college and is working in a school, he has a major breakthrough with his therapist. And one day, I just happened to mention what happened in the rectory that day to my counselor, and she put her hands up in the air and she said, thank you. Now it all makes sense. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, this is the root of everything that we're talking about. And I said, I don't even know what you're saying. She said, you were sexually abused. And I said, you weren't listening to me. We didn't have sex. And she said, it didn't matter. Just months after this epiphany, the clergy sex abuse scandal in Boston blows up following the Globe Spotlight team's coverage. It's 2002. The horrific revelations are extremely hard for Michael to stomach, but he follows them closely. Every night there were names of three new priests who had been suspended, and I kept waiting for his name to come. I kept waiting and waiting, and it never came. Like many abuse survivors, Michael eventually files a lawsuit against the church. I went to a lawyer to get answers, and through the lawyer I eventually got... Father Gale's complete unredacted personnel file, so I know everything that they knew, and I know when they knew it. Michael begins giving newspaper interviews about his story. One of those interviews prompts another man to come forward. That man reports that as a young altar boy at a different church, he had been raped repeatedly by the same man, Father Gale. This case becomes the basis for Robert Gale's arrest and criminal prosecution. Ultimately, he pleads guilty to two counts of child rape. So I got to watch Father Gale get sent to prison because of what he did to somebody else. And I had the satisfaction of knowing that I played a role 
in that happening. Amid all of this, Michael gets married and in 2005 moves to Savannah, Georgia. Not to run from his story, he says. He wants a lower cost of living and warmer winters. When I moved to Savannah, it all became a secret again. How do you talk to people about that? What do you do? Hey, Michael, have a great weekend. Hey, you too. By the way, did I ever tell you what happened in the rectory when I was 17? It just doesn't make sense. At one point, when Michael is back in Massachusetts, he actually goes to visit Robert Gale behind bars. I went to the prison by myself, unexpectedly, caught him by surprise, was very friendly to him, very gently explained what had happened and told him that I was there to give him a chance to make it right. And he told me that everything I was saying was complete fantasy on my part. So when I left, he actually filed a complaint about me, and I'm very proud to tell you that for six months, I was banned from every prison in the state of Massachusetts, which is like the most badass thing that I can think of. I called Robert Gale multiple times on two different numbers that we found for him, and I left a voicemail. I was not able to reach him. Michael and his wife then have a baby, a son. It's a joyful occasion, but having a child brings back all the painful memories. And every time I kissed my baby, I had a flashback to Father Gail kissing me. And then I would think, <clears throat> give me just a second. <clears throat> I would think, what am I going to do if somebody does to him what they did to me? And that was very difficult. As, as the months went on, I was less and less well. And I didn't handle it right. I did the most male thing that you can do. I said, I have to ignore this and be strong for my family, which is not the right approach. Michael suffers a series of breakdowns. He's hospitalized three times within 10 months, he says, twice in Savannah, once back near Boston. Throughout, he's trying to raise a family, hold down a job as a high school counselor, and build a new music career. He wants to be a singer-songwriter. His illness takes a major toll on his marriage. I didn't always make good choices. So eventually, even though I achieved wellness after years and years of work, my marriage very amicably came to an end. After being with the same partner for 18 years, Michael doesn't know very much about dating. He also has to contend with the fact that his story might scare people off. Because I know if they Google me, that's the first thing that comes up. They're going to see my music and they're going to see my abuse because all of the interviews I've done are out there. And it's an important part of me, and I want somebody to understand what happened, how it impacted me, and more importantly, I want them to know where I am in my healing so that it's not a red flag for them. Michael is in his early 40s by this point. He's finding the post-divorce dating scene very frustrating. He's trying the apps. He's on the paid websites. It's just not working. 
the few times that I had dates with people, they just didn't seem to go well for some reason. I just had problems connecting and finding the right kind of person, and online dating just wasn't the format for that. Then Michael gets invited to speak at this event at a local bookstore in Georgia. It's like an open mic night for people who've been sexually harassed, abused, or assaulted. By now, Michael has told his story countless times on TV and in newspaper interviews, but never at a spoken word event like this. I found that while I was telling my story, I was sort of transported into this dream about the past. And I kept looking up and out the windows and just seeing something that was not within the room, seeing scenes from earlier in my life and faces that I hadn't seen in years and reliving really painful experiences. I felt that sort of anger and and resentment for all of the people who basically set me up to be abused, knowing that it was probably going to happen to somebody just like me. Michael finishes his talk and sits down to listen to the others. Their heavy stories are starting to weigh on him. And then this woman gets up and begins to speak. She has an air about her of somebody that's connected to something spiritual. And my spirit had died a very slow, painful death in the years after my abuse, and there was nothing I could do to get it back. And from that first time that she spoke, I felt a little bit of a spark in a part of me that I thought was dead forever. We'll be back with the rest of Michael's story after the break. So Michael is sitting there, captivated by this woman in the bookstore. She's attractive. Her voice is soft and calm. And I just remember listening to her story and thinking, there is no way I can leave this bookstore today without having a conversation with this person. Can you walk me through what happens after that night or, after, like, immediately after people have delivered what they're going to deliver? Do people mingle? What happens? I was at the front of the room with my friends. We were talking and making plans to go out afterwards, but I kept craning my neck and looking towards the back of the bookstore, and I was trying to make sure that she didn't leave. And once I got her attention... The only thing I could think to say was, you are so strong. And I told her how grounded she was and how much it affected me. And she introduced herself to me and we shook hands and we both felt that it was fairly electric. Michael is highly conscious of the potential awkwardness of the moment. Was he really going to meet someone here, of all places? But he also knows this. He's not willing to let this woman slip away. So. He tells her about one of the bands he's in and gives her a card with his information. She says she wants to learn guitar. Michael says he'd be happy to teach her. And that's how they leave it. Until later that evening, when Michael checks his phone before a gig, this woman had already sent him a friend request on Facebook. Then Michael starts getting all of these little notifications. The woman was going back through his old photos and just liking some of them. Crush behavior. And I said, well, that's, that's pretty good. So I'll wait about three days and ask her out for coffee. 
But two days later, she actually sent me a message through Facebook and asked if we could meet for coffee. Wait, I have to ask you, <laughs> as a human person in the world, three days? What was your what was your thought on waiting three days? I wanted to wait two days, and my fiddle player, who's female, told me to wait three. I don't know why that was a magic number for her, but I figured she might know something that I don't know. So I figured I'd go with that. They meet for coffee. The date lasts hours. That same night, she shows up at his gig, where he sings a version of the song, Can't Help Falling in Love With You. They meet for coffee again the very next night. And when I was walking her back to her car, she took my arm, and we both recognized that as the moment that we started dating. One day, she comes over to Michael's house before a date. And I sang this song that has this verse that says, If I had the stars from the darkest sky And the diamonds from the deepest ocean I'd forsake them all for your sweet kiss For that's all I wish to be owning And that was always a song that I would sing to her in good times and bad times. Because we started off already knowing each other's most important secrets, we skipped right over small talk. We didn't talk about the weather or sports or even politics, anything like that. We, the conversation became deep immediately. Within about six weeks of that event at the bookstore, she and Michael are essentially living together. It was a powerful and beautiful experience, but I don't think it was the most healthy way to start a relationship and... It's almost like we had no choice but to go too fast. There was almost no way to stop it. They make it about a year. The relationship eventually collapses under the weight of its intensity. They were at different places in their healing, Michael says, and they needed different things. But he says he learned a lot from it, and he's trying to carry all of that forward now as he looks for a partner. When looking ahead at your romantic life, how are you feeling? One thing I know for sure is that the universe sends you lessons, especially in the form of relationships. If we don't learn the lesson the first time, the universe sends us the message over again, more painfully the second time. I've spent a lot of time looking at everything there is to learn about this relationship and how I handled it and what I need to do differently, how I need to be more vocal about what I need. He's also learned how important spirituality is for him in a relationship. So as I'm back out on the dating scene and meeting new people, I'm actually looking for some sort of unspoken spiritual connection with somebody that we can use to fuel the relationship. And that wasn't something that I was aware of before or intentionally searching for. To anyone else trying to date after sexual trauma, Michael would say, look for partners who demonstrate empathy. Even more importantly, find a good therapist who specializes in sexual abuse. Healing is possible. And I'm not saying that you have to be 80, 90% healed to have a healthy relationship. I'm just saying that 
my experience tells me that you have to have done a significant amount of the work before your relationship can be healthy. This is so wonderful. Thank you for sharing this story. And I feel like maybe you should write an advice column. Thank you, Meredith. I appreciate it. After talking to Michael, I wanted to find someone who works with people who've experienced this kind of trauma in their lives. So I called up Sharon Emperado. Sharon is a licensed mental health counselor at the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center. She's worked in the field of sexual trauma for over a decade. A lot of Sharon's discussions with people who are dating after a traumatic experience are about if and when to tell potential partners what was done to them and how to share that information. She says there's no one formula, no perfect roadmap, but that it helps to talk to a professional. Because you need to think about not just if, when, and how to tell a potential partner, but also, what are you expecting from them? Everything Sharon said echoes these lessons Michael learned. In dating, it's important to know yourself, to make sure you're getting the help you need, to be in a safe place to communicate those needs, to understand that your journey won't be the same as anyone else's, but that finding love and empathy, to feel that part of your heart again, as Michael would say, is possible. So I have some Aaron updates. And if you're new to us in the show, Aaron is the single woman I've been following this season. Last we talked to her, she was planning to go out with a guy her friend set her up with. I checked in with her after the date to see how it all went down. I'm just interested. You're going to have a blind date with someone. You go for full dinner. Or was it a drink? So we went for full dinner because he could meet Saturday night. Okay, that's like a date date. It is. Okay, so tell me everything. Oh, well, first we met and I noticed I was like... So Erin meets this guy at a restaurant. And she's a little bit dressed up. She's wearing this gorgeous red dress, lipstick. She's very excited. The first thing she notices is that the guy is cute and that he happens to be several years younger than her. I was like, how old are you? (laughs) He said, I'm 32. (laughs) And I was like, oh, he's 12 years younger than me. So I almost fell over, but then I I realized I could see he didn't care. So I was like, I'm going to get over it. The conversation starts out easy, she says. He seems curious about her. All good signs. And then it gets better. He starts talking about his cats. So I said, well, can I see pictures? He's like, yeah. And so, he, of course, he's, he was, like, embarrassed that he had so many pictures. I was like, never be embarrassed. And then uh, he confessed that he really likes to bake. And so he, he says that many women have asked him if he's gay. And I said, oh, you must not have been talking to older women because we love men who bake and have cats. That's all we really ask for. (laughs) They head to another place after dinner to get a drink. And at the end of the night, they share a warm hug. He sends her a text the next day and says he had a really great time. But Aaron has been down this road before. I was like, oh, it's nice to have had a nice date. And he seems like a really interesting person. And I hope to see him again. But, you know, I also was like, I can't hold my breath because... I've said that thousands of times, and and 
nothing ever happened. So I was trying to be realistic. Here's what does happen. They exchange some messages in the weeks after to plan a second date. But then it fizzles. She reaches out to him a final time just to try to plan anything, but she doesn't hear back. Turns out, Aaron was right not to hold her breath. Still, having one good date is a good thing. My goal is for her to just get more of them and hopefully find something that sticks. So we spend some time together signing her back up for OkCupid. When I met Erin, she'd already deleted all of her apps, but we both agree she's ready to try again. This time, though, we're going to do this together, where her app is on my phone, too, so I can swipe for her. We use my laptop, over pad tie yet again, to fill out her profile. And the questions begin. How does Erin feel about religion? Would she date someone with a ton of debt? Would she be open to a non-monogamous relationship? I mean, you have to market yourself. If I was honest, I'd just be like, this is bullshit. You're not even going to read this. But, you know, you can't write that. Is it weird to have me do this? Or is it making you think about it differently? I feel less pressure having you help me with it. This seems more fun than the slog when you're usually like, oh, got to sign up for another dating app. So I'm looking forward to see who you'll pick for me. It turns out that this whole idea of outsourcing your dating apps to someone else is a real thing. There's a dating coach who's gotten a lot of attention for this. You can hire her to help with a profile and swipe for you. Her name is Meredith Golden. I know, very close. It's odd. This Meredith told me that one way of getting past dating burnout is to do exactly what Erin is doing with me. Let someone else drive for a while. You know, you have to be a little positive or at least you know, hold on to the idea that maybe my way isn't working, but at least I've hired someone or my mom or sister or cousin's going to do it for me and they think that they can pull this off. Look, I'm not sure I can pull this off for Aaron. I'm not sure at all. But I'm willing to try. One of the things that the other Meredith says is that it is not true that you're most likely to meet someone when you're not looking. I think that people have to realize it's sort of like when you're going and, and looking for a new job. It's not fun going on all the job interviews. It's not fun updating your resume. It's not fun having to have prepared canned answers and sell yourself. It's exhausting. However, what is really fun and worthy is being in a happy, healthy, committed relationship. You have to do the work. Have faith. Like have a little confidence that maybe it hasn't been working, but at some point it will. And don't expect the process to be all giggles, sunshine, rainbows, and roses. That's not what it's about. It's about doing the work until you meet someone great. So that's what we're going to do. Do the work, meet someone great. But this is probably where I have to admit something to you. I myself have never online dated. I mean, I've never done an app. I've never done an online site. For a while, I think I was pretending it was because I give love advice. Like I would say, oh, it's a conflict of interest for me to be on a dating app. But the truth of the matter is, I think I've just been completely frightened to do it. I mean, there's no privacy. Like, what if people don't like me? What if I don't like anyone else? So I've just shied away from it, pretending it's because of my job. But really, I feel ridiculous about it because as someone who writes about this kind of thing, as someone who gives love advice, I should probably have experienced this firsthand. So for the first time in my life, I open OkCupid on my own phone. It feels super weird. Sure, it's not technically me, 
I mean, all these men, they're seeing Aaron's face. But I'm seeing men, and I'm actually swiping. And sometimes, I'm swiping right. Next time on Love Letters. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. The podcast is produced, edited, and engineered by Amy Padula. Audio mixing, sound design, and mastering by Ned Porter. Music by APM. Our executive producers are Scott Hellman and Janice Page. Special thanks to Linda Henry and Brian McGrory. We want to hear your stories of dating and meeting people, and not meeting people. Email us at loveletters at boston.com, or tweet at us using the hashtag loveletterspodcast. On the next episode, I explore one of the biggest misconceptions I encounter about meeting someone. If you've seen, like, any rom-com ever, you know what I'm talking about. The meet-cute myth. Be sure to subscribe to Love Letters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public, or wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're online at loveletters.show. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening. See you on the apps.